And this is questionable peel. I mumbled our our podcast name. They're questionable people. Off to a great start. As Yet usual. Again. Yeah. So, uh, Liz, we uh, we have some news, don't we? We do have some news. Which is? Uh, we won an award, and I couldn't can't remember the name of the award. Yay us! But award we won an award, podcast. and yeah, I was very excited. Yes, we are. An award-winning podcast. Yeah, we won an Addy, a Dallas Addy for our uh, Ted Cruz ad, our fake Ted Cruz ad. Which, if you haven't heard it, you can go back to the first episode. Episode one. Uh, Yeah, it's funny. It's worth your time. Yeah. I would tell you, like, exactly when it is in the podcast, or the the episode, so you don't listen. No, Well, it's fine. It's one of, I think it's one of our better episodes. You like it? Okay. It's me interviewing you. Yeah. I enjoy it. Uh, Okay. Um... This week's episode, this week, I don't know why we refer to weeks, because there's no <laughs> real schedule. Like six weeks in between every yeah. episode. Because uh, this is a hobby. Yeah. For fun. It is. This episode seven? It uh, doesn't matter. Plow through. This, this is a long episode. Anyway, we're going to make this fast. We're going to have our friend Dan Forsyth on this episode. This is He's actually here, yes. yes. We had him on yes. past tense. This, we, that's what you're about to listen to. We've already interviewed mm-hmm. him. We're just doing the intro. Dan um, Forsyth, former, we cut out some of his background, so let's give a quick overview of who he is. He is a Byzantine Catholic Catholic priest. Former. Former Byzantine Catholic priest. And we get into why former and what what is Byzantine Catholicism. He's now a, an English teacher yep. to high school kids. Yep. Um, and he is was on our short list of original guests to have on this podcast. Like, if we hadn't known Dan, we might not have done the podcast in the format that we did, which is having our friends on to talk to because we wanted to talk to Dan from the beginning. Yeah, because also he used to, um, you know, when we were at the coffee shop talking, he was often there. So, like, just part of the conversations we would naturally have. Yep. Um, and he's just a really kind and generous person he's also really smart and can be really funny um and cutting when needed yes and has great taste in food yeah so So. all reasons why this conversation went on way too long and we Uh, had to cut out quite a bit of it and make it a two-parter so yeah i also want to say the reason it went on as long as it did is because matt really (laughs) wanted it to go on that long and i i would like the record to show multiple times i suggested we wrap it up (laughs) and And i'm so glad we didn't listen to you this episode is the first part when we air or release the second part it will become abundantly clear why (laughs) i wanted to wrap it up because i not because it's not interesting but i we recorded it, what, until like 1030 at Something night? Something like that, yeah. And I just don't, I just can't hang. I had no idea that you had an off switch. Oh, it's just, 9 p.m. 9 p.m. 9 p.m. sharp. But also in re-listening, even in part one, you, I can feel you approaching it and slowly, like, it's you are the least uh, interactive I have seen you in this entire episode. It's also because you guys are learned and knowledgeable in a whole bunch of fields that I know very little about. So I have not read Moby Dick. There is a long conversation about Moby Dick. I have not read many of the books y'all have read. I haven't opened a Bible in a long, 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 long time. So you guys just have like a depth and breadth of knowledge that I do not. So I enjoyed the conversation, but I did not always have something to add. 
In the future, can I make a suggestion for when we, our guests go off on tangents like that? We expect you to make fun of us just to tease us for being giant nerds. And okay. Please. Duly noted. Okay. Uh, okay, I think that's all. Oh, we did forget the other thing we have to do. You we almost forgot, forgot to tell everyone to tell that we forgot to rate our friendships. Yeah, we completely left out the rate our friendships. So I went back afterwards and asked Dan to rate our friendships so we could do it here, and he gave you a 1 and a me, me a 10. So... <laughs> That's a lie. Yeah, I made that up. If that, hey, you know what? If that makes you feel better, that's fine with me. Okay. Uh, that's it. Here's Dan. Dan, this is the boundary button. If we, any of our questioning uh, causes discomfort, you tap that, and uh, uh, we will. Um, it's a beautiful emerald beetle. Yes. Yeah, it's a paperweight. Yep. It's but a it reminder is of. You know, if that beetle had had better boundaries, it might not have ended up there. It might not have ended up encased in plastic. Yeah. Whatever that is. Dan is at 1315. He touched it. Yeah. Aaron asked me to actually write this down somewhere. So 1315, making a note. It got tapped. Test tap. We'll add a sound in. Oh. Um, so that's that, and then uh, you're you're a male, so we have to start by asking you who you're wearing. Who I'm wearing? Yeah. Um, Zara. Uh, but like, what what did you do today at school, for instance? I, it's still your first year, so it's, you're kind of winging it, I assume, uh, to a large degree. I am. So right now, you know, I don't know. Public education is kind of. There are a lot of things that can be really frustrating. Um, and I teach all on-level kids. So I don't have any AP sections of English. I don't have any of those kids, like your kids, who have been like weeded out and sent to special programs where, because they're motivated um, or they have parents who are really pushing them to be motivated and you know all of those things that they kind of sent off and those teachers have an opportunity to work with kids who are like, you know. I occasionally see these kids in the hallway. There's a class that floats into my room during one of my free periods and I sit there and I watch them and I'm like, whoa, what are these creatures that (laughs) That actively (laughs) care about the work that they're doing? Um, My kids, on the other hand, I, I will not say that they don't care about the work that they're doing. But a lot of them don't care. <laughs> a lot of them, right, they're in school. I would say, like, a quarter of them are in school because they legally have to be in school. Um, the others are there, I think, because they want to be. But at the same time, they just don't have the set of experiences and situations that sort of push them in the right Or they are actually really highly motivated. I've got some kids who really are. Um, but their English language skills are very minimal right now. And they're working incredibly hard to get their skills to where they need to be. Those kids are the most rewarding to work with. Well, and I was to say, can you, where are some of the countries right, some so, of your students are from? Right, demographically, we're, um, my kids are like 70% Hispanic um, and like half of them were not born here, um, and the other half who were grew up in 
primarily Spanish-speaking households. Um, so then I have a number of, then I have about 20% African-American students, and then um, the other 10% are kids from places like Congo or Syria or Iraq, Afghanistan, hmm. Cambodia. Um, and I have kids who spent years in refugee camps in Turkey whose last experience of education was in the second grade in Syria. And then they're dropped into my classroom after a brief like English language immersion course. And they're reading Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail. Mm. And they haven't really had education since the second grade. So I've got kids like that too. Hmm. And um, so, you know, all of the things that you maybe sort of imagine you're going to get to do as an English teacher, like have really engaging conversations with kids about literature, yeah. just don't happen oh, in my classroom. Um, no, how, so, letter from a Birmingham jail, uh, how do you, do you teach, do you do the whole reading? Do you do the whole letter? Do you, what kind of discussions about that do you have? We read the whole letter at the beginning of the year. I was going to say, honestly, it was like literally the first yeah, thing Yeah, it was did. like the very first thing we did. And I honestly don't really remember anything about that experience. <laughs> I was so terrified just to stand in front of these kids. And like, and that also at the beginning of the year, like there were some scheduling problems. So I would have like a classroom with 40 kids in it. All right. And only 30 desks in my room. Hmm. So I have just kids who are angry because they don't have a place to sit, rightfully angry. Um, I don't know what I'm doing, and I'm trying to get them to read Interesting. A, a letter that's highly philosophical and theological and uses Charged some of the most profound like prose uh, style of the English language. Anyway. Um, well, next so time you terrifying. teach it, I'm going to need you to pay attention and report. I'm, I'm just curious how like that letter is so written to white America and such a like gentle but eviscerating condemnation of white America um, I just am curious how it how to a foreign like to somebody outside of our culture entirely how it how it connects at all and um, whether they find any any sort of you know personal life experience of their own inside of it but so you don't have to answer that so now. there are Next a year, few, there are a few report. things that were sort of interesting um, one thing that we tried to focus on was the audience that this is written for and the author's purpose. So yeah. trying to analyze the language and figure out why does Dr. King say certain things the way he does? Oh, he's writing to a group of white clergymen. Um, we follow that up with a speech by Malcolm X when she was talking to a group of so the black student union at Rochester University. and He spoke in a very different tone. So I asked kids, for example, one day, like, why do you think Malcolm X says basically the same thing this way as opposed to the way that Dr. King said it? And some people said, like, oh, well, doc or Dr. King was way more peace-loving and Malcolm X was more aggressive or whatever, you know, things like that. In this case, it was, like, my black kids who tended to, like, zero in on it, and they were like, well, my one kid said, he's talking to a bunch of... And he used the N-word. And he was like, that's why he can say things the way he does. And everyone in the class was like, oh, so it's like he's talking to his own people so he can be more aggressive. 
and they understand him. Hmm. So that was like a moment in which it wasn't something that I, w- I was struggling to figure out how to teach it. And then my kids ended up kind of teaching it themselves. That's cool. So. Very cool. It was like the one shining moment that I, I remember from that first six weeks that was all such a blur. I was going to say, because I know you've been, you've dealt with some crazy stuff and first year teaching I think is hard for anyone, let alone a lot of a lot of DISD schools have real problems, right? Just beyond the challenges of teaching um, students that have a variety of home issues and things like that. And so I think it can be, you know, a lot of teachers don't make it more than a couple years. Um, so what what has what is leaving you with this feeling that like, you know, you don't have any regrets and you feel good about what you're doing? I don't see my job as making kids into proficient readers. Now, that that sounds like a kind of terrible thing for an English teacher to say, maybe, but um, I see my job as basically trying to help kids gain some progress on skills that they already have started to work on um, and keep moving toward and hopefully on occasion try to find a way to help them catch some glimpse of the beauty of writing um, and the power that it can convey so if I can do that, I feel like I've done something. Like recently, I had a kid who is not a reader at all, like very rarely engages in class. He's not like a, a loner or anything like that. He's, he loves talking and I'm like constantly trying to. And recently, we're reading three different novels right now. Um, he's reading Fahrenheit 451. And... He left the group that he was sitting with and went and sat in the corner to start reading by himself. And I kept checking in on him and he's working on these questions that I gave him as he's like working through the book. And then he came over to me with the packet and he hands it to me. He had finished part two and he said, Mr. Can I get part three of the questions? So he was and, just like super into it. Yeah. And, and I looked at my phone and I saw that there was only like three minutes left in class and I said, Ismail, you can like you know, you can just chill. You only have a few minutes left. He said, you can work on that next class. And he said, well, can I take the packet with me? And I said, you want to work on it at home? And he said, yeah. I said, you want to take the book with you? Well, I, I don't need to take the book with me. I can just take pictures of the pages with my phone. I said, Ismail, take the book home. <laughs> like, I said, are you enjoying it? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Cool. So, like, that made all of the work that I've put into this like novel project that I've been working on to like try to get them like reading three different novels that put all that work and made it worthwhile like, all of the wrangling that I do to try to get kids to actually read and it's so hard to get them to read more than like a page yeah. right it's incredibly challenging to do that like that alone made that worth it hmm. cool and my kids are, they, my kids are, so I've said a lot of things that maybe make it sound like my kids are 
really difficult. They're really amazing kids. Uh, they're really lovely kids, and um, honestly, none of my kids, I don't hate any of them. Like, there's no kid that I dread seeing. They're really, really sweet overall. Like, I've got a girl who cusses me out once a week. Um, and so sweet. Uh, she's got a birthmark over her right eye, so she looks like she has a permanent black eye, and she look, and she kind of has the attitude to go with it. Oh. Like. And, um, and she just has these anger issues, and she just flies off the handle at any moment. And... You know, but like today she came up and she was working really hard and she's beyond anyone else in Fahrenheit 451 and she's been working really hard and she comes up and she's like, Mr. Did I get these questions right? And she shows them to me and she had one wrong and I asked her to explain why she chose it. And then she's like, wait a minute. And then she like gives another explanation. She's like, it's this one, isn't it? And she gives an explanation why. I was like, yeah, that's right. I said, you got it. And then she like side hugged me and she went, I got it. And I said, you did. And then she went back to her seat. Is she going to cuss me out next week? Probably. But, like, you know, she's not a bad kid. Cool. How, uh, how, how many times have your kids heard you break into Byzantine song spontaneously? Never. Oh, that's a shame. Did they know what they're missing out on? <laughs> that was always... A few of my kids knew, knew that I was a, know that I was a oh, priest. Oh, you, you talk about that? Like, some of them know. Okay. Um... I have not, like, voluntarily talked about it, but, like, on occasion, like, someone will say something like, Mr., where did you teach last year? Um, and then it kind of comes up. Okay, interesting. So uh, part of the reason I ask is back in that, you know, those halcyon days of all of us hanging out at Davis Street, I had a metric for whether today was going to be a good day or not. And it, if, if Dan ended up telling a story that required him to burst into some 900-year-old Byzantine him as part of the story, then that was a sign it was going to be a good day. That was, <laughs> I, uh, I miss those days. I miss them too. Um, genuinely. Can you tell everybody what a Byzantine, Catholic. what the Byzantine Catholic Church is? Because I didn't know that existed no. until I met you. Right. So the easiest answer that I have is, have you seen my big fat Greek wedding? Yes. No. So if you've seen what? my Big Fat Greek Wedding, really? I n did not see it. If you saw my Big Fat Greek Wedding and you remember the baptism or the wedding scene, then I would say, so they're Orthodox. Do you know what Greek or Russian Orthodox yes. are? And then sometimes people will say yes, like Matt, and then Liz might kind of shake her head and be like, mm, whatever, mm. right? And then I'll be like, it was the religion in that movie. So we are basically that, only in communion with Rome. I have seen the deer hunter. Oh, so, and then that's the second one that I usually go to. <laughs> and then I'll say, have you seen the deer hunter? Remember the wedding scene? That's what we are. But without all of the domestic violence, hopefully. Um, and so, but that's the kind of like pop culture answer. The, the real answer is Christianity spread uh, throughout the eastern half of the Mediterranean world first before going into the western half of the Mediterranean world. Um, the most important centers of Christianity in the ancient world were not, was not Rome, but rather uh, like Constantinople, Alexandria, and Antioch. So if 
you follow the traditions of Christianity that developed around the city of Constantinople, um, which had the ancient name of Byzantium, um, then you are a Christian in the Byzantine tradition. So there are a number of churches that follow the Byzantine tradition, such as the Greek Orthodox Church or the Russian Orthodox Church or the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, things like that. Um, and at some point in Christian history, around the time of the reign of the Empress Maria Theresa in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, this is like the really ridiculous part of all this story, um, there were a group of Orthodox Christians who realized that it would be politically expedient. In other words, they would get tax breaks if they became Catholic, but they wanted to keep their Orthodox <laughs> I traditions. I didn't know this part of it. All right, yeah. great. They wanted to keep their Orthodox traditions. So the, Maria Teresa brokered a deal with the Pope that would allow these people to become Catholic, but maintain their Orthodox traditions, such as their liturgy. And autonomy to some extent. Their too. autonomy, the fact that their priests were allowed to marry, um, and their, by and large, their theology, which is very different from Western theology. And, um, and so that worked fine. And then a lot of those people came as immigrants to the United States in the late 1800s, early 1900s to work in coal mines and steel mills. And, and it's much more common in the Midwest, the new Northeast, where right. is the Northeast, center of it? Um, the center of the Byzantine Catholic Church in America is in Pittsburgh. Okay. And the Metropolitan Archbishop of uh, the United States, um, who is like second only to the Pope in the sort of Byzantine world, because he's the head of his own church, um, is located in Pittsburgh. Okay. I would just and like to side note here and say we could have a whole a whole other episode about Dan's love of Pittsburgh. Oh, he could interesting! Just I didn't go, know that. He could go I, on for a long time. I, about I grew up outside of Pittsburgh, yeah. Yeah. and um, it's just a really great city. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. for another so, day. So when you were when you were the priest here mm -hmm. in Dallas, you were also it's, it's very uncommon here in the Bible Belt, and so much so that you were over not just this church, but like what the entire state or most of the state or what. So I my parish extended as far south as Austin. I had a community in Austin that I uh, ministered to, and then as far west as El Paso. Okay, yeah, that's wild to me. So I had over half of the state. Hmm. Um, and you were not. You weren't raised in this tradition. I was not. I was raised in the Assemblies of God, which is a church in the Pentecostal tradition. Okay. So, if we're just going to dive into the Byzantine Catholic conversation, how did it? How did it grab you? How did you come to this tradition and uh, and not only come to it, but decide that you wanted to serve within it and become a priest and sure. all that? So I think the the. Maybe maybe your listeners might be more familiar with the Pentecostal tradition. Yes, I don't know. I mean, it's uh, we got assemblies of God. Yeah, they're they're not quite they're not evangelicals. Um, they follow the holiness tradition. Um, Aesthetically, there's a lot but in common. There's a with lot in common with the evangelical. But tradition. the evangelical tradition I grew up in, for instance, was incredibly suspicious of. Any kind of direct experience, yeah. such as happened in the in the Pentecostal church, which is still, which is a fascinating, a whole other fascinating faith conversation for me. That suspicion that that 
if you my ever, tradition brings to that tradition, but yeah. whatever. If you ever want to, if you ever want to learn something about the Pentecostal Church, watch an amazing movie with Robert Duvall oh, called yeah. The Apostle. It's a great movie. It's a fantastic movie. Go out and watch it right now. Um, and if you ever want to read about the Pentecostal tradition, read James Baldwin's "Go Tell It on the Mountain." Albeit that's the the Black Pentecostal tradition, which yep. is a little bit different. You um, should read that book anyway, yeah, even if you're not interested. Yeah. In, Read it just because it's James Baldwin and he's amazing. Um, but yeah. um, so growing up in that tradition, there's a real, there's not much of an emphasis on an intellectual approach to theology, but an emotional um, experience of the Holy Spirit. And um, you do not really study theology. This is the way that I received it. I, I feel like there may be some Pentecostals who would be like, hold up, like, yeah, yeah, we definitely study theology. But the way that I would hear about it from the pulpit growing up was, right, we're not taught by man, we're taught by God. So that was that sort of thing. And, right, so you study the Bible and you receive direct revelation from the Holy Spirit, and that's kind of it. Um, but if you're a kid who reads a lot, and is really interested in things like science, um, you know, and like as a little kid, dinosaurs, what about dinosaurs and creation? And, you know, I mean, all of those questions that don't make sense based on what you read in the Bible and what you see at the Smithsonian Museum when you go there with your parents as a kid, you're like, I don't know how to make sense of all this. And then, you know, I had a friend in high school, my best friend in high school was Muslim and I was, really worried about him going to hell even though he seemed to be like a much more like a much better person than I was <laughs> um, all of those sorts of things when I was in college I took this course in like the great books of western civilization you know and so we're like reading Homer and the Greeks and all of that stuff and then we do this semester on early church history and I started reading the early church fathers, people like Athanasius and Gregory of Nyssa and Basil the Great. Of course, these are all writers in the Byzantine tradition. And they had this incredibly intellectual and philosophical approach to theology that was way more interesting to me and like intellectually challenging to me than anything I had experienced growing up. Um, and I was in, I was doing a semester abroad in Austria, and the campus that I was at also had a lot of Byzantine Catholic students, and I ended up being invited to a service one day, and I went, and so like Byzantine worship is incredibly ornate, and uh, the liturgy is very Byzantine, like in the sense of complicated. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also very beautiful. There's this... To me, Byzantine liturgy is, right, it's not just about keeping certain traditions and rituals, but it takes, like, the experience, uh, the spiritual experience, whatever that is, right, the thing that you can't really speak about because it's, it's an ineffable experience. And it wraps it in a shroud of incense and hymns and movements and gestures 
and repeated words and creates a sense of, of awe and wonder around that central mystery of experience. And that's what it presents to you. Like, I, I think in its best form, that's what it's presenting. And that really captivated me. Combined with the fact that you're also, like, hearing in these hymns the words of a lot of these great theologians of the 3rd, 4th, and 5th centuries that were intriguing me in my reading. And so that's why I decided to become Byzantine. Cool. That answers that question. And then the part of your part of that process was, I mean, it, so you became Byzantine, and then at what point did you decide to go? I mean, was it seminary? Is that what you was right, it all so the same decision, or was there a? It was not all in the same decision, but at the end of my time at at college, I was thinking about going on to get a master's in classics because, you know, keep studying Latin and Greek. Or the other thing was to learn more about this religion that I had just adopted. And it seemed to me that the best way to do that was to go to the Byzantine Catholic Seminary in Pittsburgh. And I went without the intention of becoming a priest, but just with the intention of, like, learning about this religion. Um... And then, kind of four years later, found myself realizing that here I was, about to be ordained a priest, and so that's what happened. Hmm. Um, and thinking, I mean, and thinking, well, it makes it seem like I got to the end of four years of seminary and was like, oh, well, here, here I am. I guess I'll do this, which is not exactly how it was. I mean, it was more like. Shortly into my time in seminary, I was, you know, like seriously considered, like really considering becoming a priest and thinking of it more and more as a good idea. What was it um, that drew you to the idea of being a priest? I mean, that's a that's not a. Yeah, it's clearly not just a, sure. an offhand. Well, I got the degree. Well, I think I'll be a might priest. Might as well be a priest. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a there's a whole lot of sacrifice involved mm-hmm. in that decision and uh so I think for most people so because of a quirk of like the way that oh I'm putting my hand on the I was putting my hand on the on the boundary button on the boundary button oh, but I you were I just did not, touching it affectionately yeah I was just yeah I wasn't you weren't consciously I wasn't consciously there, avoiding maybe there was a part of you that so was, maybe, would like to skip past these, this line of questioning no I do not want to skip past this line of questioning um, okay, your question was... Oh, yeah. Yeah, how do you make that decision? Um, so, according to, like, a quirk of the Byzantine Catholic Church in the United States, um, here in this country, uh, the Byzantine Catholics don't... Well, at the time that I was in seminary, they did not ordain married men to the priesthood. So... Um, a lot of the guys who were in seminary were like actively thinking about like if if I become a priest I won't get married and then that's that's that even though like their orthodox contemporary or um, colleagues or their Byzantine counterparts across the sea are able to be married and then become priests like that's you know something for me like I wasn't considering getting married because I'm gay and at the time was just like well, I'm a Christian, and 
I like I have this idea that I believe that it would be wrong for me to be in a relationship with a man. Um, and so I was like, well, I guess I'm not going to get married. So Midas, how, how conscious was all of that? Was that was that I was in the background or I was pretty conscious of that. Um, probably since the time I was a teenager, like pretty conscious of the idea that I would never get married. It just didn't seem a possibility to me. Um, and I didn't want to do something that I thought was like wrong or sinful. Um, now, saying that, I never really, like I was never really good at any sort of self-hating or like self-loathing. And I... Lucky you. Yeah, I... <laughs> I credit my parents with that. Oh, good. I think, right, they... What are your even parents like doing they, right now? <laughs> even though they, like... <laughs> Liz, and I, Liz and I may need to talk to them about some things. <laughs> like, even though they raised me to believe that it was a sin to be, like, right? I mean, that was just one of the things I had sort of ingested growing up, like the idea that it would be a sin to be gay. Um, at the same time, I think if... You know, I think if your parents love you and treat you with a lot of love, it's hard to hate yourself, even if you, even if you like. I'm just gonna, I'm just, I'm just speak up for Liz and my parents, and maybe disagree with that. The blanket statement, no. Oh. No, my parents love me. My parents adored me. I still hate myself. I mean, I, I'm getting better. I used to really hate myself. I'm, I'm okay with myself these days, but it's taking a lot of time and work. I don't hate myself. I'm just a black hole of doubt. Okay. That's anyway. Anyway. No. Not to <laughs> not to take anything away from yeah, your, no. your childhood experience. I just also think. I mean, I definitely can't speak for the gay experience, and it is a a big spectrum. I but can't. I think you would you would yeah, try. Yeah, just I can mansplain <laughs> anything. So. I, mean, I just I feel like being able to get out of your formative years without. A ton of self-loathing. Um, that's it's just, that's fascinating. Yeah, so yeah. that's awesome. Like, so this is the thing. Like, I just my whole time in college, never had any sort of experience with it with a guy. Um, I fell desperately in love with a guy in seminary. Um, Who was also in seminary? He was in seminary, actually. So here's the real reason I went to seminary. Oh yeah. Oh! This is actually this is actually the real reason, and this is like the story of my life, right? So, um, some friends of mine and I were going to the Byzantine Seminary in Pittsburgh um, during our like last year of college because we heard they had these Lenten services and we wanted to go. Um, you crazy Because we were those kind of kids. We were like, we want to go to this church service. Well, and we're going like, to a Lenten service for somebody in the, in the in charismatic the tradition yeah. is like an act of rebellion. So. Yeah, so I mean, I was being kind of rebellious. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so we were going to the seminary, and it was like this lovely, you know, it was this really lovely place, and there were a lot of lovely guys there. We were just really nice, and like the staff was really friendly, and I mean, it was great. And there was this guy there that I met. Um, his name is... And he was so kind, and we just like hit it off. We he was, we talked a lot about poetry. Um, he was constantly reading poetry and, and and other books, and we we read a lot of books in common, and so we would just talk about literature. And I mean, like a lot of the convers types of conversations we've had, Matt, like mm -hmm. 
like I don't know of anybody who I've had conversations with about books quite like I've had with you except for so it was like that's he was that sort of person uh, yeah okay that was that was a beep sound we beeped out a name it doesn't sound like a beep but it serves the same function. And the reason it doesn't sound like a beep is that we don't pay our editor anything. And so when he says, can I do this crazy beep sound? We have no real political capital in which to say no, make it a regular beep sound. Honestly, I was just excited he wanted to contribute. Yeah. Like, Thank- besides just following our instructions. Yeah, so you're gonna, so. you're gonna hear a lot of that sound this episode. It grew on me. It did, me too. Over time. Same here, so bear with it. And we just beeped out a couple people's names because yeah, we don't know them. They're yeah. not here. This this name that we just beeped out, Dan told us not to beep it out, but we just felt like we don't have that guy's permission to make him part of this story since, since we don't know him. Okay, back to the interview. Um, we became friends and we started hanging out. We would go to the Phipps Conservatory in Pittsburgh together to look at flowers. Um, <laughs> You know, um, we, he was out jogging one day, like a spring was, you know, like just starting in Pittsburgh and he saw a flower that reminded him of a flower we had admired at Phipps Conservatory together. And so he picked it and he pressed it in a book and he sent it to me in a letter and he wrote in the letter the poem that he had pressed the flower against like wow that sort of thing so i was That's quite a gesture yeah, yeah i was really in love with this guy and then at the very and so that was why i decided to go to seminary um actually now was i conscious of that no not really okay. like the main reason was i want to learn more about this faith like i said earlier sure. the real reason i went was because of um, and it's taken you a long time dude it took me a while to that. figure it out okay. and to admit that what happened to him so, um, after I got accepted to seminary and I was like looking forward to being there and also being there with him, like, uh, we went out for my birthday to get some dinner and we had like a wonderful evening. And then at the end of dinner, he told me that he was leaving seminary because, hey, you remember that, that girl that we hung out with at the pilgrimage that ta da 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 da? Well, we've been talking a lot and, I really want to like we've started dating and so I'm going to leave seminary and he now has like seven kids I think do you do you think he he knew something about himself that he wasn't willing to admit or that he I don't think so no I like it took me a while to think about it like to figure this out so on on his wedding night no on the night before his wedding so I was in his wedding okay um Oh, the day before his this wedding. This is some, like, his, call me by your name shit here. Oh, my gosh. So the day before his wedding, um, his his wife, like, says to me, she's like, Daniel, she's like, you know what, can you, she's like, do you mind st- spending the night in his room? Yeah. Like, because. Okay, this is Liz and, and Matt cutting in real quick just because nobody mentioned the sound that Liz just made right there. Uh, how would <laughs> How would you describe that sound listening back? Like a sucking wound? Like a... Was it like that? Yeah, it was very much like that. 
Yeah, it was I just, a pain. I just sound. felt I felt pained. Mm-hmm. I felt pained for Dan emotionally. All right, I feel I just that's all I needed. I just needed some context around that. Back here we go. Back to the real interview. I need to make sure that he doesn't stay up all night reading a book oh, uh, we, till, how, till three in the morning. How do you like describe does. my face and Liz's face right now for the people that are listening? To you this. don't need to see their faces. Um, oh my God. How do you how do you like stay, you know, make sure he doesn't stay up all night reading this book. And then he's dead the next day for the wedding. And I'm like, yeah, I know that's what he's like. And she's like, so make sure he's in bed by midnight. And then make sure he gets up in the morning and gets himself dressed and like all of that. Do you mind doing that? I was like, I don't mind doing that. So it ended up being like a single bedroom. So we're like in bed together and we're there and he's like reading to me poetry from his book, right? Oh. And so I'm like, okay, it's midnight. We need to go to bed. So we go to bed. I wake up at like two in the morning and he's like spooning me from behind. Like, no. Oh, and, and what the, what? and then I wake up in the morning and it's like he had rolled over. No, no, no. You and there's like no, there's no discussion. No, it wasn't like even. And you know what? Like now mm. that I look back at it, I think he's just one of those people who is just was always totally comfortable showing, like the sh- the sorts of like friendly love and affection that at least in our society, guys only show to each other if they're in like in love with each other and sexually attracted to each other. And I don't think he was, like I just don't think he was, I don't think he's gay. And I think he's just one of those people who was totally comfortable just being like, I wanna read poetry with my best friend. I, get, I want to send him a flower that I saw because it reminded okay, that's me of where, like, that's where I, you know, the, like, the line is for me like I could I could see reading poetry with a best friend a pressed flower I don't know okay, I like, mean I, you know it took me a long time to okay. like because I thought for <clears throat> so long that like he had done something that was like and you know what I, I I've Hung out with them a lot. I've. I really hope they've not like listened to this, but they're probably you can, not. You can but have us cut this. No, out we're not going to cut it. But I hung out with them a lot. Like I, it is very obvious. I mean, maybe uh, who knows? Whatever. He's just one of those people that okay. I'm. That's totally comfortable being who he is, and huh. there's like nothing else I can say about it. I'm just. Okay. How li- did you handle? The being spooned in the middle of the night. How do you? How do you? <laughs> what, what do you do with that? I mean, that was <laughs> that was a little bit soul crushing. I bet. You know. I was just gonna say I, I'm just emotionally devastated for you. I I've never too. heard this. You've story. never heard that. No, story. I have oh, never I've heard that, that story. I've, I've heard the I've heard the the story of your coming out to the first person you told, which is almost oh, as good of a story. It's. <laughs> My, yeah, my best friend Tom. Okay. Oh, I haven't heard this story. Oh, this I have met story. Tom, but this I have not heard this story. story. So, yeah, the first time that I ever came out to anybody, um, I was already a priest, and I had been transferred down here to Dallas, and I was... <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing thinking about this story already. <laughs> you know, so, and I was only going to be here for a few months, and it was, it was to cover the holidays because the Dallas Parish didn't have a priest um, and so 
right after Christmas, my best friend, Tom, who I, you know, had a, like a little bit of a crush yeah. on. Um, but he came, to, he flew down and he was going to help me drive back. But we were going to hang out for a few days. And it's winter time, you know, it's January. And it was like one of those rare Januaries in Texas where it actually snowed a little bit and it got really cold. And, um, and so for these like three days, I'm trying to figure, I, I realized, like I was at a point where I realized like I have to tell somebody, I have to come out to somebody. And you know, here I am, I'm like 26 years old and had never come out to anybody, had never told anybody, a single person. Like, not even, you know, like, not even confessed to a priest, right? This sort of thing. Um, and and so here's this person that obviously loves me and cares for me. Like, he's such a good friend. I was like, you know what? I'm going to tell Tom. But I was really worried. I was so worried about telling this person that I, like, spent so much time with and that we were in such good terms with because I was afraid, so afraid he was going to be uncomfortable with me. And then I was going to lose, like, something that I really loved about him. And so I kept trying to find opportunities to tell him. And so we went out one night to Fuel City Tacos, um, mm. which, yeah, I mean, it's I've, all right. I've it's learned. All right. yeah. I've learned yeah, yeah, yeah. things. This, this is, is the best 2 a.m. Hey, taco this was, you can find. This was me, this was me, like... This was me three months into Texas, yeah. and I knew nobody here, and I found Fuel City Tacos. That's so. better than I did. Yeah. That's true. No judgment. So there we go. Um, so we went to Fuel City. We came back, and I built a fire in the fireplace, um, and we're hanging out, and I was like, hey, Tom, I need to, I really want to tell you something. And he's like, so if you've never met Tom, have any of you met Tom? Yeah. I've met Tom. Okay. Just once. He's like very... He's super impulsive, yeah. and he's just like in your face, and he's really like. Um, he has a lot of energy. He's a lot of energy, and he's like, sure, buddy, sure thing. He's like, and he's like very <laughs> Pittsburgh. So I, I don't want to like butcher a Pittsburgh accent. But, uh, no, no, Pits my favorite part uh, of this story, uh, the Pittsburgh other time accent, I heard it, was you know, he's like, your Tom voice. Yeah, sure, buddy, I can do that. You know, I mean, Pittsburgh is very like. You just want to go downtown, and get some sandwiches in it. So imagine yes. everything that he says in that voice. <laughs> so it's like that's that's Tom. Okay. Um, he, he's also like a he's he's a track coach at Duquesne University. Like uh -huh. he's this very like athletic, intense, like driven, competitive person. Like, and. And he's like, yeah, sure, buddy. But you know what? I'm getting real hot with in front of this fire. And he just, like, strips off all of his clothes. And he's just in his underwear. And then he, like, and then he like lays down Burt Reynolds on a bearskin rug style. And then he looks at me and says, so, yeah, buddy, what do you want to say? Did you tell him? No. I did not. I, I didn't remember that sound. No, I could not. Oh How the hell am I supposed to tell him I'm gay when he just like strips down to his underwear and is laying in front of a fireplace in the dark? Uh, that's the kind of thing like if you had a time machine and you'd had a gay friend that came out to you previously in life, you would like go back to that moment and do that just yeah, to like. I, I wish that asshole. I had now. I mean. No, I'm saying that but, Tom, like yeah. if I were in Tom's place yes. and I hadn't done that yeah. then, and I found a time then machine later would. in life, <laughs> I would go back in time and play it that way for sure.
So several oh, days goodness. several days later, we're just to finish that story to, to kind of like give you some sense of Tom. Like several days later, we're on our way back to Pittsburgh, and we stopped in at Applebee's. Um, and there's this waitress that um, Tom found attractive, and I was, you know, just like, and. So he was sort of flirting with her, and then we get back into the car, and we're driving, and at this point, we're in Ohio. Um, there's a snowstorm. Um, my grandmother was dying, like, at home, um, and I'm, like, trying to get there. She actually died that night, um, but we're, we're driving there, and Tom says out of the blue, he's like, so now that you're a priest and all, and he's like, you know, what do you think when you see a a girl like that at Applebee's. You know, I mean, she was really hot. Da, 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 or like, and I was like, mm, mm-hmm, well. And he said, well, didn't you find her attractive? And I was like, no, not really. Well, I s- suppose you like, there's some girl that you do find really attractive. He's like, I mean, like, how do you, like, what do you do with those feelings? Knowing that, you know, you're like committed to a was, life. Of, I think he was time traveling at this point. Like, this was future Tom that came back uh, to make here for you. <laughs> and and I was like, well, Tom, I need to tell you something. Wait, is this what you wanted to tell me? Then I, <laughs> I was like, yeah. And and so I told him. And here, I mean, it's like blizzard, like blizzard conditions. <laughs> yeah, and you're We're in like the car driving together, yeah. through Ohio, like a two lane road, up and down hills. It's dark. And Tom, like, Tom, like, unbuckled his belt. And I thought, oh shit, he's going to try to get out of the, like, he's going to get out of the car. He just, like, he looks at me, he's very serious. He unbuckles the car. And then he, like, practically, and I drove a stick shift at the time. He, like, climbs over the, the stick shift basically to like get at me in my car and I'm like what are you doing Tom and he's like come here come here and he like tries to give me a hug um, and he's like and he started crying and he was like no one's ever like shared something so personal with me and he was like you made me feel so like special right and that was so that's Tom so that was a good experience yeah, yeah. it finally ended up <laughs> <laughs> It worked out. But yeah. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love that story so much. So, <clears throat> um, if I'm like jumping ahead, you just cut me off. But I was just thinking about like, you know, when you became a priest, you had told yourself like, I'm not getting married. I am gay. But like, that's just a, kind of a part of yourself you're going to seal mm-hmm. off mm-hmm. and put on the shelf. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that has changed and was that the driver for you leaving your job as a priest was it other things I feel like you've probably also had some changes in your own personal spiritual life like connected to that but also apart from that can you talk about that a little bit um did I jump ahead no that's fine um so well, we can come back, but I just want to, before we get there, like, how long, how long were you a priest? Uh, I'm going to piggyback that mm-hmm. question with one first. Like, I'm gonna, I jumped ahead. Because this, so you were, you were, I mean, a very dedicated, um, sincere um, 
compassionate. I mean, like the, the, we both of us have visited your church when you were. Oh, you didn't? I never went. Oh, I thought you not even on this last day. You weren't. No, I was there. working. Oh, I believe at that that's point. That's right. Sorry, I didn't. Yeah, it's didn't, all right. That's, anyway, we my family and I went and um, and visited both the service and a a wedding and um, I was it's it was you were. You seemed to me at the time um, not only very good at it, but also very comfortable and fulfilled and um, I love being alive a priest. in it. Um, I really, really loved being a priest, and that, and it showed. I mean, it really felt like it was it was something special and sincere for quite a while. Yeah. Yeah. Um. What was your question? That was Sorry. it. I mean, oh, I just yeah. wanted to, just, to yeah. paint. I mean, to make it clear that it wasn't like a you know you came like, out to his, you came out to your friend and then the next week you're like yeah I think I'm done with this. Yeah, yeah. no. So that was very like early on in me being a priest. Like I was I'd been ordained a priest for maybe six months at that point. Um, and you were the youngest ever in the tradition, or that I was the I was at the time that I was ordained. I was the youngest priest serving in the whole country okay. for the Byzantine Church. I see. Now, I wasn't the youngest ordained, but like, like the youngest person ordained ever, or something like that. But I was the youngest person of like no priests were younger than me. Okay. That's. Okay. Now I'm I'm I did get ahead of myself. I would like to hear a little bit about what you enjoyed about the work. Yeah, that was kind of my question. Yep. Um. Things that I enjoyed about the work. Um, you know, people are really miraculous beings, and they do incredible things. Um, and as a priest, you are privy to things that nobody else ever gets to see. Um, you see people in their most like vulnerable and terrified moments and in those moments you see people do remarkable things people react with remarkable compassion people push through prejudice um, or anger or hatred or bitterment or res or you know bitter resentments to like do something loving and kind or generous and so much of that like those little stories like happen in these odd moments that like a priest gets to see but like nobody else really sees and so you know there's like this grumpy guy in the congregation that everybody is sort of annoyed by because he's constantly grumpy um, but like, I had the privilege of seeing the one thing that he did that like redeems his whole life and that no one else will ever see and that he would be mortified if anybody even knew about that sort of thing like um so there are those things i loved i really did love the ritual of the, the liturgy um there's something really beautiful about it and i think i was i think i can honestly say i was really good at it um i was I think that I understood something about what that ritual meant and what it was supposed to mean for people's lives. And I tried my best to always highlight that in the, 
in the liturgy, and people did respond to that. Hmm. People found right these like very ancient rituals, which can seem so alienating in some sense, um, actually inviting and um, and meaningful to like a kind of modern context. Um, so those are some of the things that I loved about being a priest. I loved reading scripture and preaching um, because I think like right scripture has this it's something that everybody sort of accepts right that's in that congregation everybody has to sort of sort of like one of the basic things that we accept and we all hold that in common whatever we all think about it we all hold it in common and so it becomes the basis for a conversation um, that can draw people of diverse backgrounds viewpoints into a conversation that otherwise they might never have especially in a society that tends to be very polarized and where we all get our information from our particular um what's the word echo chamber right Mm -hmm. um right there's this scripture provides this it sort of like destroys an echo chamber because it's ancient and so many people have read it and thought about it and spoken about it not just now but over thousands of years and and so if you enter into it you kind of have to reckon with all of these other voices that have reckoned with it mm-hmm. and um, you really can't close your ears to those other voices and there's something challenging about that um, and uh and I love participating in that conversation. I got, I mean, I feel like I got to see, and I apologize because this is going to, I know this is going to lead to like eight other rabbit trails and we're all, we're going to get to the meaty question eventually. But I got to, I mean, not only witness your doing all of the things you just said in your own congregation and, and meeting people in a very, um, in a, certainly in a way I hadn't seen in my own faith tradition growing up um, and in a way that clearly meant something deep and profound to them but also just in conversation with you I mean I, I like it happened with me the way that you were able to approach scripture and think about the Bible and talk about the Bible and talk about all the people that have talked about the Bible like I had this this huge sort of resentment to the entire book based on my my upbringing that uh, that you kind of helped free me from in a lot of ways, just because of the, the sort of the freedom and openness and and really literary perspective that you you brought to even thinking about it and discussing it. I remember, um, like, I, don't, I remember talking about um, several things, but one was uh, so like the story in so the Gospel of Luke uh, starts with. The birth of John the Baptist, mm-hmm. um, and then the birth of Christ, and then it, uh, and then later, there's a scene in Luke where the um, the disciples challenge Christ on who John the Baptist is, and Jesus they I think because they ask there's this rumor going around that, G, that John the Baptist is is Elijah because Elijah never mm-hmm. died he was taken up to heaven and he came back and and uh, and Christ says if you can if you can believe it yes he is um, so he's, he confirms it um, although in the Gospel of John 
they, John denies being uh-huh. Elijah, but um, but Jesus says he's he's Elijah, and and the, the fact that we see Elijah, I mean, we see John the Baptist's birth is this weird sort of like okay, but if he's it's not it wasn't a simple like he went up to heaven and came back mechanic. It mm-hmm. sounds a lot like reincarnation. You were mm-hmm. the first person that kind of uh, not only validated my concerned with that but also pointed out that uh, origin was it origin is that how you say his name origin and really right. church father actually believed in what he called the transmigration of souls um and now i don't know that like origin necessarily believed that elijah was sort of reincarnated as john the baptist but origin believed in this in the, uh, this the basic whole idea concept. yeah, yeah and, exactly i wasn't saying it validated yeah. and, that um, particular hang up of mine but yeah, so it's like a fat, and it's like one of those things that it just shows that there's like this whole aspect of Christianity that was kind of neglected and yeah. ignored, and yeah, those, and that was that a widespread belief at that at the time he was writing that there was this this possible sort of death rebirth cycle. Um, it was a widespread in belief in the Christian world. I don't think exactly in the Christian world, but there definitely was enough of it to influence origin that so it was was definitely in the philosophical world um, which origin was really versed in Um, and origin was trying to bring philosophical learning to bear on his understanding of scripture he really wanted to be able to expound scripture to his sort of contemporary non-Jewish audience and he found a way of sort of marrying philosophy and scripture um, that would have made it accessible to a Greek mind, um, which is the genius of origin. Um, So while a lot of origins ideas ended up being later rejected by sort of mainstream Christianity, like that's definitely one of them where you see this marriage of sort of Greek thought and Jewish thought, um, yeah, but yeah, that, I mean, that was, I don't know why I picked that example, but there were, I mean, there were I thought million, you were going to talk about the Abraham and Isaac I, Well, yeah, story. so you helped, you definitely helped me. I had this abject terror of the sacrifice of Isaac story, which I find horrifying to the point where I well, you should all find it horrifying. walked out of churches if that's going to be the, the subject of uh, We should discussion. all find that story horrifying. Oh, my gosh. I cannot. I do. agrees with you. you we should yes, find it yeah, horrifying. Quote, quote Kierkegaard for us. What does he say? Uh, he says basically something along the lines, if, if the story has not kept you up at night trembling, then you've never read it. Who among us has it rendered sleepless? Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. you're better at it. Uh, no, I, I, that, I, yeah. <laughs> Matt's clearly thought he's a lot about yes. this one. Um, oh gosh, no! Just that that like Abraham is held up as this like paragon of virtue and faith because he did this absolutely horrible thing that should have disqualified uh, him, him from from being uh, worshiping God like, at all, yeah. like having any interest in God. Uh, but yeah, you 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 pointed me to um, Aviva Zornberg's. Uh, Midrashic interpretation. Go out and read that if you're at all interested. Ah, oh, it's an amazing book. A murmuring deep. No. What? What? Uh, can you? Uh, can you summarize her? Oh, so, argument and putting you on the spot. Yeah. So this is. Think about this for a second. Um, I, basically, her idea is that the midrashic commentaries on that story, the, the midrash, midrash are. Um, 
sort of ancient Jewish rabbinic commentaries on scripture. And these commentaries pile one on top of the other. So you might say, Rabbi so-and-so says about this verse X, but Rabbi so-and-so says about what Rabbi so-and-so said this, and Rabbi so-and-so says about what Rabbi so-and-so said about what Rabbi so-and-so says, and it just keeps going, right? Like an infinity of interpretations. But um, she contends that Abraham is suffering from this unresolved childhood trauma. Um, Abraham's own father attempted to sacrifice him um, and it didn't work. Um, and so Abraham is sort of stuck with this idea that a father attempts to kill his own son. Um, and that God, that, so Abraham sort of acts out in his own subconscious this forbidden desire that he himself has attempted to suppress. And the Midrash like points to this number of places in the book of Genesis where there are these sacrificial images that rise up in Abraham's mind um, and sort of haunt him. Um, like the story in which Abraham falls into a deep sleep and has this vision of these animals sacrificed split in two and there's like a burning furnace that moves between these creatures, right? <laughs> Liz is shaking her head like the Methodists never read this story. Like I remember those story about Jesus multiplying loaves and fishes. Right? Absolutely, that was a good one. Yeah, um, so it's a dark story, and it's like, where is this coming from, right? And, all, and then like another after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, like <laughs> Abraham looks out at the cities and he sees the smoke rising as if from a fiery furnace. And the Midrash is that Abraham's father himself tried to have him cast into a fiery furnace in sacrifice to the gods of Babylon. Um, and so Abraham like has this deep-seated terror of the father who tries to kill his son. And then he like, like almost compulsively attempts to do it to his own son. And then like at the final moment when he's about to do it, like God intervenes almost as a psychoanalyst and like forces Abraham to see what it is that he's doing and it stops Abraham and God like then delivers his whole lineage from this compulsion to sacrifice one's child. Mm -hmm. and, and it's I think it's like all about this whole idea of terror of the divine and the the desire to appease the divine that you're afraid of because you're also maybe afraid of your father and you feel like you have to do something to appease that angry father thing like and right and of course I think a lot of people have the idea of God as an angry father and sure um, anyway it's a fascinating it's, article and I did a grave Injustice to it's what Aviva Zornberg says. I don't so. remember the details of it. I just remember there was. A, 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 you wrote a poem for me about I it, did. actually. Yeah, no, I mean, I was like, I, it was, it was a cathartic. That conversation was like fixed something in me that uh, I don't know why I was so, um, so haunted so long by that particular story. But uh, it, I wish I remembered the poem. I, it's like a poem I wish that I had memorized. It's. It was like a Yeats poem. Well, thank it you. It was like a, 
it was like a you know that demon slouching towards Bethlehem sort of Yates <laughs> right what is that that's that's nice the, to hear. I need I feel like I need to say for the record that there was no press flower included with yeah this no press flower <laughs> <laughs> but maybe you bought me a cup of coffee I or did yeah there. absolutely I'm sure you did yeah. something like that uh, yeah that and then okay so another example is um, so my son Colin has this terrifying like it's been years but it was mm-hmm. for the, he has he's gone through cyclical fears and um he uh he was he like every night he could not sleep because he was worried about monsters in the closet like or just just this like ocd level repetitive thing um and uh i told you about it and you i, I don't the, i don't remember that conversation at the time but i do remember later talking to colin and he was worried about this, and I was like, well, you know our friend, you know, Dan, right? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, well, he, you know, he's a priest, and, and he has people in his congregation that will, will bring him to, you know, help cleanse and bless a house to help, you know, you know keep it protected and keep, the, you know, evil away. And, and I, like, I remember his aunt, he looked at me, like, with this, these wide eyes and just said, can he come right now? I love Colin. So I told I told you this, and Mm -hmm. you went and created an entire liturgy. This was while you were a practicing priest, and brought your your vestments and your censer over, and um, had an entire. I mean, a a triple branch candlestick. Yes, I have photos of of you and and Colin there in the closet, and him just holding his candle up to the the open. Was he so happy? Oh, I mean, it it fixed it for him. Well, like we stood in front of the closet and I I asked Colin to hold this triple branch candlestick which we use in like the blessing of water for a baptism um, it's like a symbol of the light of the Holy Trinity and so he's holding it and we open the door and I ask him to walk into the closet with this light basically and to you know command whatever was there frightened him to leave um and he did that and i think that was the i think that's like a it's a sort of important part of like byzantine liturgy is this idea that we take the things of this earth that are good um like god created and blessed us with and we take them and we use them to banish the darkness from our lives and we sort of take back control from our hatreds or fears or whatever. Um, so that's why I asked Colin to walk into the closet and tell whatever was there to leave, hmm. right? Because it's sort of like, I don't know. Yeah. But he, yeah, he did that. He did it. I mean, you had an, uh, Liz and I have discussed this many times that we need to try to strong arm you into writing an entire book of of um, unconventional liturgies for unconventional occasions. Uh, I, wrote, yeah. I wrote a really beautiful prayer for the blessing of a cat once <laughs> for somebody. It's like the most, it's the thing that I'm most proud of ever having written, I actually. Would, I would buy so many copies of that book if you made it, because just on the strength of the liturgy you were calling, I mean, it was a stunning, I, like I tried to find it but so I could read it, and I cannot find it anywhere, but it was a, a really, really beautiful um, literary uh, expression of um, of the, the inbreaking of a divine presence into something very mundane, and, uh, and I, 
I certainly, I don't know how you think back on your time as a priest, but I, I feel honored to have um, experienced that sort of mediation that, that you know, I, I've always had this, um, not always, but for a very long time, a deep suspicion of not just male authority, but especially male spiritual authority. And, and to see you, even though I wasn't a member of your congregation, even though I'm not, never was a Byzantine Catholic, to see you model um, a very different, very accommodating, very sincere and profound and, and um, poetic version of that was, uh, was I, I, I am honored that I got to, to know that, that period of your life. So, thank you. Thank you, Matt. I'd also just like to add that that story is the lens through which my mom sees you, Matt. <laughs> it's her whole frame of reference for you, because I told her that story, and she just loved it so much. I, that's not even my story. That's Dan's well, I, story. I, anytime I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, Matt, it's not Matt I do a podcast with, Matt, who I'm friends with. She's Matt like, oh, Matt, who has closetless. that son, and Father Dan came over yep. and did the banishing in the closet. Yep. That Matt. Yes, that Matt. That's me. So that's you. Um, that's a good thing to be known for. Yeah, I'll take it. Uh, so, okay, so we've talked about reincarnation. This is one more tangent. Um, <laughs> so, I occasionally I have experiences where I feel like I have either I share the same dream with someone the same night, oh, yes, or I have like a related dream this. to somebody. Um, so I, I, uh, do you know this story? I, just, I have no idea where this story is. This is one of these like weird Matt stories this where is, I think anybody who knows Matt and has talked to him long enough is probably. Yeah, I got a few of them. This one's up there though. Uh, so I, I had, a, I don't have dreams that feel like, uh, every once in a while I have a dream that feels urgent. I'll wake up remembering it and I'll be like, that was something, there was something deeper there than just a dream. And I had this one morning I woke up and I had the, it, it didn't feel like even I was remembering a dream. It felt like I was experiencing a memory of being burned alive. And I was like, God, this is, I mean, like it, it, like it hurt. I woke up in pain. I woke up with this like sense of agony and like, um, I mean, it's just like flame. Like it was like, I could taste it and smell it. It was really, really, you got a thing. Uh, you got a thing with the flames and the furnaces. Uh huh. Yeah. Anyway. Um, and so I went, it was a, it was a coffee morning, so we went and I, I, uh, uh, do, let's take a break and talk about this whiskey since we're getting more I, of it here. Really? This is this, up that's, there. We're gonna, you're gonna start, I had a prophetic dream in which I was being burned Flames alive. Flames burned alive. This is, it was a coffee morning and oh, let's take a break. So we're reaching for the whiskey. This is good whiskey. Um, is this our sponsor? Well, so I went to Bar and Garden today, which I would love to just mention them. Bar and Garden is the best. They That's are the best place to get liquor yep. and wine yep. in this Dallas. Is true. They're so lovely, and they don't have everything, but everything they have is, is very good. good. No so kidding. I just went in and said, I want some sip and whiskey. And she gave me a couple options, but this one is from Lost Republic um, out of California. And she basically said it's summer bourbon. It's like kind of nice and light, and so is that's really up, all she had to say. This is up there with the Metallica whiskey we had uh, last episode. Yeah, 
Chris can come back you and should, bring someone else. You should go back and listen to that episode. It was fun. Also, Baringa, they're so good at helping you. They are. Yeah. They love something. it. Yeah. I, they seem to actually enjoy Every time enjoy I go, it. I go, that's the only place I buy wine. Just because I don't know anything about wine. Like, I know more about whiskey or beer or whatever. But I don't know anything about wine. And I go and I say, I would like to do something that's kind of like this. And they always give me something great. Yeah, one time I went in and we wanted, like, an Amaro or, like, something like that. Yeah. And she, it was the owner, she, Julie, pointed out, like, five different ones yeah. and was like, and well, this like, one's I'm, more like this. And this one, we went to the place where they make it in and Mexico. This and this one's made by a woman. This is a woman-owned company that yeah. makes Amaro. Like, yeah, not just, not just this is how it tastes, yeah. but, like, this is the story yeah. of that product. And it's, yeah. Um, okay. So you were being burned alive. I was yeah, being in burned a alive in this dream. dream. Got it. And it was a didn't feel like moment. a dream. I wake up, I go go to get coffee, and I'm like, I got to tell Dad. So I tell Dan about this story, and he he goes, Oh, that's funny, because I had a dream last night that um, I, that one of my friends wasn't actually my friend, but was really the reincarnation of Saint Pelagia, who <laughs> oh my who, gosh. Who was a Byzantine martyr, and this is actually happens to be Saint Pelagia's feast day today, right now. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wait, "Wait, are you kidding me? Like, what? How did she die?" And and Dan was like, "Ah, all the Byzantine martyrs were decapitated, so the story doesn't probably doesn't hold up." Um, so we let it go. We're like, "Ah, well, that would have been a great mm-hmm. coincidence if that had worked out." And uh, so we talk about other things for like an hour, and then finally I'm like, "I gotta look up how Saint Pelagia died. She was not decapitated. No, she wasn't. She was burned alive." Inside a brazen bull. So, like, I they, mean, that's one way to go, I guess. Yeah. So like, they, you know, they have a big bull. Yeah. Made of brass. Like, in the shape of a bull. They, and it's hollow, so it's hollow inside. Which is my right? last name, I should point out. Yes. Last name. And they put Pelagia inside of the bull, and then they start a fire underneath, and oh, the that's horrible. brass oh, becomes, that's you know, like red horrible. hot. Oh, my and God. She's burned alive yeah. inside of this. Yeah. So, Pelagia. I now also answered to Saint Pelagia. Oh, holy martyr Pelagia, you were burned inside of a bull. You know that—that's a kind of Byzantine. It's probably not not, a real one. It's probably not the Trapanian of Saint Pelagia. (laughs) Made that up. But sort of. Give us another one. We we sing a lot of hymns like that. Like, Uh, give us a real one. First, you had your hands cut off. But in Greek. And then they cut off your breasts. Then they put your body inside of a bull. Give us a real <laughs> And you were burned alive. Therefore, Pelagia, we honor you today. Uh, uh, can, I, can I just say, uh, being raised Methodist, we never talked about martyrs. <laughs> Ever. Like, I don't know how many kids, like, you know, like happily singing songs about, and then your head was chopped off. Right. You know, it's. Well, like, if you give us a real one in the actual language. Oh, uh, like an actual, like, Greek. So, yeah. well, all of our services were done in English, but there were certain hymns that really? would occasionally be done I don't remember that. in, like, Greek, for example. So, um,. I don't know. Um, here's the uh, here's the Easter hymn, which I think is like really it's a really beautiful one, and it's in Greek. Um, so you you know, Christos anesti ek nekron thanato thanaton pati. Sauce, 
Etisentis nimasin Zoin Charis Amenos So Christ is risen from the dead by yes. death, trampling death into those in the tombs, granting life. I caught the word death in there. That's the only Greek word I could pull out. Thanatos. Did yeah. you hear zoin? I did not. That's life. Mm-hmm. But we get the word zoology. Oh. There we go. That's cool. Cool. Thank you. I, the, anyway, I was hoping for that to happen. I had to force it, though. I don't know if it counts. It was worth it. All right. Um, we could jo- May I think we need to save you have the culmination. Moby, you have Moby Dick. I do have Moby Dick that. sitting here because uh, I wanted to read you something from it, but it's not. we're not ready for it yet. Okay. Um, uh, oh, it's not in this. Matt and I read Moby Dick around the same time. Oh, gosh. It's we amazing. We both had our minds blown. It is true. So we did all those. We did that. Oh, you know what I wanted you to talk about? Because um, it was, I mean, it, we, it, it, fitting with this this whole idea of uh, bringing to faith a kind of expansiveness that I had didn't have modeled for me growing up. Um, you have a story of another Byzantine saint that you told me. Uh, the I think it's the monk Theodora. Oh yeah. I, uh, I, I, f- I feel like there's at least a loose so if connection I were to say, that will tie so, together. So Liz, if I were to say a monk, what would you say about that? Like, like what? Like what do I picture? What is a monk? Like I would imagine a man. Uh huh. Um, but if you hear the name Theodora, that would not not be a man, right? Correct. So um, there are a couple of these saints. I I actually gave a sermon about this once. It Did was like really? one of the riskiest. Sermons oh yeah, that I this gave. is a risky um, sermon. Go but damn. it was the it was maybe the feast of the monk Theodora. Um, so she gets a she gets so a feast. she gets a feast day, right? Um, how how many do you know how many feast days there are? There are a 365. lot. Three hundred and sixty-five. Okay, yeah, yep. lots of feasting. So, yep. well, lots one of, of them's mine. Yep. Yeah, one of them is Saint Pelagia. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, Thank you for continuing yeah. to honor me. I appreciate that. <laughs> so. Um, so there is this like whole class of Byzantine saints that I don't know there are like four or five of them Theodora is one of them and they were women who so not all of these saints like their lives are written by monks right so like at some point once they're recognized as a saint some monk living in a monastery like sits down and writes out this story so um, the story goes that Theodora wanted to enter the monastic life and she looked at the women who were living the monastic life and decided that they were not living a strict or more difficult monastic life. Of course, the men were living the more difficult, challenging life. Of course, since this story is being written by a man, right? That's sort of flattering. Um, And so she decided to disguise herself as a man and enter the monastery. Um, there were at least like five saints like this. Women who decided to, even though they had the perfectly like valid option of entering the women's monastery just down the road, decided to dress themselves as men, take a man's name, and enter the monastery. Um, and they lived as monks. Um, and 
were never it was never questioned that they were not a man. Well, I was gonna say, is it the kind of it's like kind of like a don't ask, don't tell thing where everyone just accepted it? Well, this is or this is, it is like a good passing? this is a good question. Liz. Or it's like Mulan. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's my only reference. Is Mike the Pence would not like excellent. Okay. Mike Pence would not like um, <laughs> good uh, Theodora, the monk Theodora, right? Um, so the way the stories are always told, it's like Mulan. But who's writing the story? A man. Um, in like the fifth century, right? So the only thing that they can imagine is well. This woman disguised herself as a man, and nobody noticed. And so this is this is how it goes with a number of them, and maybe it's with Theodora, I, and I forget. Right, they kind of all these stories run together. But usually, the woman who's a monk gets accused by a woman who comes to the monastery for like spiritual counsel or confession or something gets accused of sexual assault. And. This woman then says, and this monk fathered the baby that I'm carrying. So Theodora took to heart the counsel of Jesus Christ that you don't respond to accusations by denouncing the other person who just accused you. And she just remained silent. And so she's been accused of fathering a child um, and she was thrown out of the monastery. The, um, the woman had the baby, and she's like, I don't want this baby. And she gives up the baby, so Theodora takes the baby. And she lived, like, in a hut just off of the grounds of the monastery because she wanted to continue living the monastic life, and she raised this child as her own. Um... And she continues to present herself as a man. Um, Then Theodora ends up dying. And when she dies, the monks are like, well, this guy who's out here living in this hut just died. We should probably go take care of his body. And they go, and as they're preparing the body for burial, they realize that it's a woman and not a man. who could never have been who could never have right, fathered this child um, and and so she's then buried with and this is the interesting thing she's buried with all of the funeral rites of a monk not the funeral rites of a nun right, a nun being a female monastic so sort of restored to her she's position. restored to the position that she chose for herself which was that of a monk and so that's how the story goes um I find that super interesting yeah. because while the story is very much a Mulan story, right? Um, it's to me, I'm like, what's the sub, what, what's, what's behind this? What was this woman like Theodora? Was she, you know, I mean today I think we might, maybe she was a trans man, right? Maybe he was a trans man, right? I mean, and, and this is the interesting thing. The Byzantine church decided to call her the monk Theodora. They give her her female name, and the but male the male honorific title. And 
she's forever celebrated as a, as a monk and not a nun. Um, Interesting. So mm-hmm. that's and and that's the sort of thing where to me, this is the this is kind of the sad thing about the Byzantine Church for me, is that if you look back into the history of the Byzantine Church, there's you see these moments where there is room carved out for people who um, are fit. queer, right? They, yeah. they just don't fit some construct of the way we think of things. And, um, and yet they are s- celebrated um, and celebrated in a way in which we sort of respect the choice they made for themselves. Right. Um, so Theodora chose to uh, adopt the identity of a monk, um, a masculine identity, and and even went so far as to not reject the idea that she had fathered a child. Um, so it's a, it's a very interesting. So there, are, the Byzantine tradition is full of stories like this, um, people who did things like this, and. And yet very few people in the Byzantine tradition, like very few theologians or church leaders, especially um, in the Byzantine tradition, Orthodox or Catholic, um, pay attention to these stories Hmm. or pay attention to this. And it's even a part of the theology itself. Like the theology itself, I think, lends itself very much to the idea that like every within every person, there is a great mystery that has to be respected. you know, like uh, the Virgin Mary. Um, in the West, there are all sorts of attempts to define right things about her, her immaculate conception. What's the Greek her, word? That, the right, Theotokos. Yes, and and we call her the Theotokos in the Byzantine tradition. I can't and the I one who that. gave birth to God, literally. That's what it means, Theotokos, the birth giver of God, not just the mother of God, but the one who physically gave birth to God, um, and. So there are all these, you know, in the West, there are all of these dogmas about her virginity and her conception and all of these things. Whereas in the East, we don't really want to say a whole lot about that. It's better just to surround her with hymns and praises and things like that than to try to prod too deeply into the mystery of the person that she was. Um, And I think... I think that approach to the Virgin Mary, for example, that you find in the East is an approach that is meant to then be applied to every other human being. Every human being is some sort of a remarkable, profound mystery and prodding too deeply into their life to try to figure out why they're this way or that way is it's kind of gross. And the attempt to do it is violating. Um, allowing that person to say who they are or celebrating that person as the mystery that they are even if they can't articulate the words to say who they are like right that opens up so many doors for a lot of the issues that in contemporary christianity we're having church splits over yep so um i think there's so much room within the byzantine theological tradition for people for everybody, um, the unfortunate thing is that, right, like every other church in our country, 
the Byzantine church is caught up in culture wars mm -hmm. and thinks about things in ways that are actually alien to its own theological tradition. So how much of that, I mean, it seems like it's a natural segue into what Liz was asking about a good hour ago, uh, but how, how much of that was a part of your decision to leave? Um, or is it? That was a lot of my decision to leave. And I, um, I began to get really worried um, as we were coming close to uh, what seemed to be the inevitable Supreme Court decision legalizing gay marriage. Yeah. Um, and I should say that my time in seminary helped me reconcile myself to being gay. Like, my seminary helped me accept myself. Like, the it seminary was, itself it or was you, like, what you were going through privately? The seminary itself... Actually, like the theological education I got at the Byzantine Catholic Seminary in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, like I, I don't know what it's like now there. I think it's moved in a more conservative direction. I was going to say, they're probably not going to be yeah. happy to hear that. Yeah. But when I was there, like it gave me a tremendous theological education that I think rooted me in the deepest part of the Byzantine tradition in a way that enabled me to be able to articulate what I just did okay. a few minutes ago but about that tradition being so broad and open to people. Like There wasn't necessarily, you're not saying that there was a like a sexual identity component to anything. No. Like, it just was a yeah, freedom and just, an expansiveness and yeah, a liberality of thought. About, the, about okay. the approach to theology. That in, like, in the best sense of that term of liberality, like that, yeah. that was a part of my education there. And it, and it helped me like, I, I think it's like, right, I th for me, like, the discomfort with being gay was a theological discomfort. Yeah. Right? And it required a theological answer, yeah. and my seminary gave me the tools to work out that answer for myself. Fascinating. Um, so by the time I became a priest, I was, like, fine with being gay, wanted to, like, date, and, like, here I am now accepting a you know, an ordination, which also requires now celibacy. So, um, that being said, I never at any point, I always sort of thought, well, if I meet someone, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say no. I'm not going to keep myself from exploring a relationship with someone if I meet someone. Um, and that was from the beginning of the time of me being a priest. Um, so, like, that wasn't the driver of me leaving the priesthood. It wasn't the idea of being, like, lonely and wanting to have a relationship or something like that. I was open to the idea of having a relationship, even if that meant me. That relationship eventually, like, leading to the point of me leaving the priesthood. Like, I thought of that as a possibility, and I was fine with that. Hmm. But as the Supreme Court decision was coming up, I... Um, there were already Roman Catholic dioceses that were requiring their priests to like take public oaths in the liturgy in front of their congregations saying that they opposed marriage between people of the same sex mm -hmm. like 
Um, oh, goodness. It was like making it almost like a secondary creed. Oh, gosh. And um, that there are shades of that in my faith tradition that just the whole. So I was I was worried that if the decision came down that. I mean, the decision I wanted to see the Supreme Court make, I was worried that my church would then require that yeah. of all of the priests and ended up not doing that. But but you still time, had a Roman Catholic like the, you always talked about this sort of you called them the the rad trad mm. Roman Catholic crowd that would there was. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up because there were so because the Byzantine tradition is right kind of ancient ancient right it has not changed much in the last thousand years um there are a lot of traditional list roman catholics conservative folks who hated the second vatican council and the second vatican council was like what the 80s that that was in the, the 70s? 60s 60s okay yeah, so so they rejected a so change that happened they rejected a change that happened in the roman catholic church that liberalized the roman catholic church in this sense it like allowed the liturgy to be celebrated in vernacular languages yeah, right. um it made the liturgy more accessible to people um it it so these are the mel it gibson went back people to, yeah they're the mel gibson people right exactly <laughs> <laughs> um and they uh, fled a lot of Roman Catholic parishes in places like Dallas and started going to places where they thought they could have a more traditional liturgy. Okay. They also assumed that that more traditional liturgy would come with a theology that would be as rigid and as sclerotic yeah. and exclusionary <laughs> as they I'm wanted. Use the word sclerotic. <clears throat> it's one of my favorite words. Did you know that sclerotic comes from... Uh, a Greek word which means rigid oh, or uh, hard um, or turgid so scler- like let's, sclerosis let's, push it, let's right? push it as far as we can also pears right you know the crunch in pears oh, yeah. that gritty pear yeah. those pears the cells in pears are called sclerenchyma cells yeah, interesting what's based the opposite on the same of word, sclerotic skleros in Greek um, hard I don't know what the opposite is it flaccid of. yeah I was gonna say limp Laco. flat that's a Latin word, so I don't know what the Greek I was asking in English. Be. I, anyway. Um, yeah, let's move on. Okay. Why? <laughs> this is a, a delightful. But isn't sclerinkama <laughs> one of the funnest words? Yes. Uh, yes. yes. Um, so they thought that's what they were going to get. Yeah, they, they thought they were getting sclerosis. Instead, they you know, were not happy um, because I would occasionally give a sermon about like, Gee, maybe the maybe Theodora was a trans man. <laughs> um, what do we do with people? Just having been at his like, congregation, it was done a little more deftly than that. Say yeah. social justice warrior <laughs> over here. How do we? How do we? You know, in a in a society where people choose, I, you know, find a way of like embracing an identity for themselves. How does the church respond to that? How do we, as a congregation, respond to that? Um, maybe the best way is to just let that person speak the identity that they have. Like, that was basically the sermon yeah. that I gave. And, you know, I remember looking out over the congregation and seeing, like, half the congregation, like, nodding, and the other half of the congregation having, like, the little Charlie Brown, like, dark cloud um, erupting over their head. Um, 
So the Supreme Court decision happened, and I saw Facebook erupt, and my congregation leap at each other's throats. Half of them were had like rainbow flag uh, Facebook yeah. profiles, and the other half were like, "This is the end of our country." Like the four horsemen of the apocalypse are about to ride across the land, and um, so I gave a sermon that sun- well that Sunday I wrote a sermon that had nothing to do with any of that Um, and I turned around after chanting the gospel and I looked at the congregation and I opened my mouth prepared to say the first word of the sermon that I had actually prepared and then I realized that if I gave that sermon like if I had to answer for any Thing that I preached before God, like this was the one that I actually had to <laughs> answer for. And I said, so, something interesting happened in our country this week. <laughs> and, and this wasn't planned. And it was totally not planned. And I was like, and based on people's Facebook profiles and comments, we as a congregation feel pretty split about what happened. And so... I was like, so the Supreme Court decided that there's a constitutional right for gay people to be married and we can't discriminate based on sexual orientation with regards to marriage. And I know some of you are really happy about that and some of you are really upset about that. So this is an issue which has obviously divided other churches, the Episcopal Church, for example. and it's an issue that is very much a part of our own church. Pope Francis recently, you know, I mean, his who am I to judge question that made all of the tradies in my congregation feel like a nuclear bomb had gone off. Um, and so I was like, how are we going to handle this and keep from tearing each other apart? Um, the gospel reading that day was Jesus calling Matthew. Um, to be his follower and then eating a meal with him and the Pharisees saying, how can you uh, eat with tax collectors and sinners? Mm. And Jesus said, go and learn the meaning of this phrase. It is mercy that I desire and not sacrifice. So I said, let's take the Pharisees out of this altogether. I don't want to say that anybody in this congregation is a Pharisee. Um, But what do we have? We have Jesus inviting someone to a meal with him and sitting and having that dinner and what is our liturgy but we I mean in the Byzantine tradition the altar is not called the altar it's called the holy table so the idea of the liturgy being a meal is always central to the Byzantine liturgy in this sense. so we should remind ourselves it is a meal that we're participating in and when I look across the table at that meal uh, look across the table at this meal who do I see on the other side do I see a bigot who's on the wrong side of history Or do I see someone who is intentionally being disloyal to the teachings of Christ and trying to destroy the family? What is that person's identity? But their basic identity, the foundational identity of this person across the table is somebody who has been invited to share a meal with Jesus Christ. And if I look at that person who I profoundly disagree about on something very important, and I see that that's their primary identity, 
it's a lot harder for me to demonize them because I see them as somebody that's been uniquely invited by Jesus Christ to share this meal with him and therefore also with me. So that was my sermon. <laughs> and the next Sunday, uh, a third of my congregation was gone. Oh my goodness. And Can people... I just back up for a second and, and applaud? Yeah. I mean, did what... What was the mood in the room at the time? I mean, it was uh, there were people who were like, "I know I mean, you had, I know you had an LGBT, LGBTQ couple wow. in uh, my. Uh, I had a number of gay people yeah, in my exactly. congregation, More LGBT people in my con- congregation. I may um, or may not have attended a secret ceremony. Of, yes, you may or may not have attended a secret ceremony <laughs> at one point. <laughs> um, at the Oak Cliffs. Sub courthouse and then at St. Basil's afterwards, yeah. Um, I'm gonna, <laughs> Boundary button has been. Like, oh, you know what? Never mind. <laughs> Fuck that. I, I did not stop that. Un- I'm, I'm untapping right. that. Untapping. We've had our first right. boundary un- button untapping. And leave, the, and leave the fuck that in there, too. Okay. You got it. I gotta write it down. I keep talking while I'm gonna write All the, of the, down. <laughs> to, to quote Moses. No. God, everyone in Egypt who sought your life is dead. So anyway, I don't care anymore. Um, yeah, so there was like, there were a few people who were like, like, like that, which is a very rare Oh, thing. you actually did get applause. I got a God couple of people your, who actually like people. clapped. Fucking it. Um, and they were people who surprised me. Really? Like they were conservative, uh, good. like kind of conservative people who were like, who were able to put aside their self-identity like, and hear the call? Like, yeah, and they like hear the other side. I had like oh, a, wow. I had this lady who was so like kind of arch conservative about all sorts of things and so like rigid and like constantly like at me. And she came up to me afterwards and she was like, she was like, "Thank you, I, you helped me see something that I've never seen before." Wow! Like she said that and that, like, and I was like, "Oh, wow!" If Totally surprised me. So they were not the third that left. She was not a member of the third that left. The third that left wrote letters to the bishop um, saying that they wanted me to condemn what had happened at the Supreme Court and that I didn't. And so I was therefore promoting a radical homosexualist agenda. I love the word homosexualist. It's a great word. Uh, I didn't realize I was a homosexualist until just now. You are. (laughs) Fantastic. We're we're three homosexualists here in this room right here. I'm very pro-homosexualist agenda. When you put all those words together. Yeah. Um, And they also started spreading rumors that I was having a secret affair with a friend of mine. And this is a name, Will's name we originally beeped out. Just because, again, we didn't feel like we had his permission to be a part of this story. And then we ran into Will, and Will was like, no, that story's awesome. You should leave my name in there. <laughs> so so we, we do have Will's permission to be a part of Dan's non, uh, non-gay affair story. <laughs> okay, back to the story. Spreading rumors that I was having a secret affair with a friend of mine, Will Riggs, who you all know. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and when I forgot 
when one of the members of the con and they were using this as a as a way of trying to get people who they knew were very conservative who were still at St. Basil's they were trying to get those people to leave like they were like did you know Father Daniel is having an affair with this guy just comes to, to his house um, just just and, to oh, make things a little more awkward for Royal Riggs right now and Casey's leaving or Casey's listening uh, my wife would leave me for Will Riggs if he, if he, if he played his cards right. He's very charming. He's very charming. He is well, he's well loved. He's very well loved in yeah. our neighborhood. And, and one of my friends in the parish who knew Will and was a member of the parish, she was like, you know, he's getting married next month to a woman. Well, we've seen his car. <laughs> over at the parish house, like what, what is this? And these were people that I, I have I not like, seen. Guy, he, he, he didn't he drive a motorcycle like, at or that like time? he drives a Hyundai. Like what does that mean? Yeah, he was driving a Hyundai. You know, and he was like, it's not a Subaru. Like I, I would understood if, <laughs> if, he, was, if he had a Subaru, but oh, <laughs> uh, you know, and it was like, and I, these were people that I had, you know, like sat up all night. At the hospital with Wait, their but kids. Wait, back to the car thing. Like, <laughs> what? I think they <laughs> mean they'd drive? seen his car at. They'd seen his Dan's car house. at my house, which was like connected Dan to has the church. A friend. I see. Therefore, I you know, see. Okay. Therefore, I'm having hot sex in the rectory. That's God. what they were. Rectory is so the wrong word. To yeah. Know, a place <laughs> that you so, don't want to have hot gay sex. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe. Um. Anyway. Anyway. Uh. I tried to... And I was like, <laughs> I wish I was having hot sex in the rectory. I wasn't. Mm. I was not. Nope. Anyway. So that was painful. And then there were people in the congregation who were still there. Conservative. Like, and I could tell they were now uncomfortable with me. Like, and we would have just these, made a pass at all of them. Yes. And they would have these conversations with me occasionally in private um, in which they would, like, edge up to the question. But because they're good Catholics, they, like, they never ask their priest, are you gay? Oh. This is one of the things, right, that we all are becoming more aware of now, even if you're not Catholic. But there's all these stories, right? <clears throat> Lots of, right. Especially with all, like, the sex abuse crisis and stuff like that and some of the things that we're, like, recognizing... Um, is that as an institution, a lot of the ways in which child sexual predators were protected was because there's this whole culture of secrecy within the church. And a part of that whole culture of secrecy is all of these gay priests who can't be out. Even if they're not even like having, like, even if they don't even have a relationship, right? Even if they've been celebrate their entire priesthood, but someone knows they're, still they're gay, a secret, right. they, they have to keep that a secret because if it becomes known, like, they lose their job and their yeah. livelihood and all of those things that these, like, really good priests are good at doing and are, are compassionate, lovely, wonderful people, whatever, all those things. And so because of this secrecy, it's just this whole culture of secrecy and certain people know other things about other people and they can use that as blackmail against oh, other people wow. and that's like so people who do bad things can use the blackmail they know against people who don't do bad things you know anyway it's terrible mm. um, but 
And is this where, where so, this whole like, so, but also like Catholics red trad right? boogeyman of, yeah. the, of the lavender mafia? Oh yeah, mafia the lavender comes. mafia, and they right. And so, but Catholics are also very polite. They don't ask their priest questions that are someone hard. else might ask, right? And so, but they edge up to it, and they would ask me, "So, what do you really think about this?" And I would say, "Well, this is what I really think." And at this point, I'm not speaking as a representative of the church, but just like me, like this is what I think. This is where I think our theology points us. This is right. All of these things. Um, but what I wanted to always say was, and this isn't just an academic exercise in my mind. It's important to me because it's about me. Um, and this is something I've thought long and hard about because it actually matters to who I am as a person. And it matters to who, you know, it matters deeply for a lot of the people who are in your congregation and you don't even know. Like the person that you sing in the choir with every Sunday and you respect so much got married at the Oak Cliff Sub Courthouse to his partner of 42 years last week and you've had two marriages you know it's yeah, like right. you know it's like by the way it's like by the way i mean not to say that but it's like yeah. not that i would have ever said something like that but it's like you know but i can't say that because that's their story yeah and i can't say and also if i were to say my story to you which i want to do i wanted to say this but the moment i say that I'm out of a job. I can no longer be a priest because if you go and tell the bishop, then that's it. Right. I get removed. Or I wouldn't really have been removed from the priesthood. I would have just been moved. Moved, right. Which is not that's a way a of dealing with right. things, no. right? And so I realized that I couldn't be open in a full way with someone. I always had to be slightly defensive about myself and my and my personal life I had to be defensive and one of our favorite writers that we have in common Marilyn Robinson in her book Gilead mm. one of the characters John Ames says nothing true can be said about God from a posture, posture of defense. defense and I Which realized spectacular I realized that I was becoming a defensive person was that was that quote in your mind as you were wrestling with this? I didn't realize yeah, that. That's, it was always I knew we mind. loved that that phrase. I didn't realize that was a part of your decision. Like I came across that phrase the first time I read Gilead by Marilyn Robinson and I found it really fascinating oh, yeah. and so true. But then I learned how true it was in my own life <laughs> like several years oh, after having amazing. read it. And I So I realized that I I couldn't be a pastor anymore. I, because to be a pastor, you have to be open. You have to be open about yourself. Yeah. You have to be open to the people that you are ministering to. And I could only be open to half of the members of my congregation. And the other half, I wanted so desperately to be open to, but the moment I would be open to them, I would lose my job. On the other hand, I wasn't really doing my job anymore because I couldn't be open. And that's what made me decide that I had to, I 
had to step down from my position as a priest. <laughs> All right, that's the end of part one. Uh, come back for part two if you're into super nerdy esoteric stuff like the Old Testament and and um, Moby Dick and Tolkien and Lucifer and the whole uh, how Lucifer shifted over the course of the development of the Western canon and what else? Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh, yeah. Epic of Gilgamesh, Beowulf. Um, yeah, it got weird. I was super into it. Liz, uh, Liz enjoys listening back. I mean, can I say that? Yeah. I don't know. Is that? Yeah. I didn't believe you. <laughs> I enjoyed y'all's conversation immensely. Oh, thanks. And you will, too, next time. Yep, thank you. Uh, Thanks to Aaron Garcia for editing this. And um, go to questionablepodcast.com to subscribe. You can see pictures there of Dan. Uh, You can see pictures there of Dan blessing Colin's closet uh, in full Byzantine vestment. Um, That's it. Bye. Rate us. Five stars. Ten stars. People don't stop. Whatever. Max stars. Most stars. Watch it. It's just a temporary thing. So don't get too attached.